Good morning, my name is Yuna. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 1 through 15. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John 10, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool through kindergarten, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you're able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listens to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follows him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons, abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep knows me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Marcus. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. I was away sick for a few weeks, but I'm well. feels good to be back. Praise Jesus for health. Um, before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in silence this morning, and let's just wait a beat. I'll uh, wait a few moments, and we'll pray, us, pray for us before we get started. Christ, Lord, our King, our Shepherd, our Friend, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this community, for this family that you're forming, for the relationships that you're drawing together here. God, thank you that I'm part of a community that I miss when I'm gone. We sit with you this morning, Jesus, here in this place. May it, be, may it be a place of healing and connection and slowness, God. We breathe with you. We recognize your presence that comes with stillness. We want to see you and hear you in scripture. Speak to us this morning. Amen. Well, the last few weeks, uh, my wife Caroline and I, we've been deep in the process of purchasing a new used car. Caroline's car had close to 300,000 miles on it. We were pushing it way further than it wanted to go, so it was time. We'll miss you, 
2007 Toyota Camry. Rest in peace. Neither of us are really like car people, uh, but for the past few weeks, you would not know it at all. Right, with the internet, with phone calls, with word of mouth, we've researched makes, models, trims, features, safety reports. We've gone in and out of dealerships. We've met a handful of salespeople. We've test-driven. We've discovered what we like. We've discovered what we don't like. And I got to admit, I loved it. I loved gathering all of this information. I loved learning the landscape of this like, very niche subculture. And I became this like, kind of cocky pseudo-car expert for a few months. Uh, and so if anybody's interested in exploring the consumer-priced, mid-sized, medium-trim SUV market for the years 2017 to 2023, I'm your guy, okay? But then, after all the research and after all the data gathering, it came time to make a decision, which I gotta admit, I did not love that much. Right before, we had all this information in front of us. The world was just full of possibilities for our automobile lives. But then we had to start closing some doors. We had to say no to some options. And it became really easy to psych each other out. Are we going to make the right decision here? Is this the best deal? Is that feature really worth it? Is that really the best use of our money right now? Did we miss some vital piece of information along the way? Did the dealer just take advantage of us and we didn't know? According to reviews, people have great experiences with this vehicle, but what if we get the one defective car that's just going to be a headache for us the next 10 years? We test drove that car a week ago, and we liked it. I think we liked it. Did we like it? Maybe we didn't like it. Do we need to go back and test drive it again? If we go back and test drive it again, are we wasting time and we're going to lose that other car? And it's, it's only buying a car. It's a relatively small in the grand scheme of life. But the process got me thinking, how quickly we all can stumble into anxiety as we approach these big decisions. How quickly big questions and decisions of our lives can transition from excitement to fear. Now, naturally, we all want to make the right decision. So we ask a bunch of questions, we explore, we wonder, we investigate, we research, we talk to friends about it, we bring it up with our small group. Valuable tools in our pocket. Sometimes this journey is even fun to do. But then it comes time to make a decision and move forward. And all the questions and emotions and information sort of becomes annoying and painful to sift through. Maybe some of us this morning are at a crossroads of our own. Maybe we're coming up on a transition in our lives. Maybe we're in the throes of a discernment process. Maybe you're looking to move to a new apartment. Maybe you're thinking of applying to a new school, starting a new job, leaving an old one, starting retirement. Maybe you've narrowed your college decision down to two or three schools and you're not sure which one's the best one. Maybe you're thinking of starting a new romantic relationship. Maybe you're thinking of ending an existing one. Or maybe your transition's an internal transition. Like Katie talked about a few weeks ago, maybe you are in the middle of shifting your stance on a certain topic that you've held dear for so long. Maybe you're changing the way that you engage friends and family, adopting a new perspective that's making your relationships hard. Maybe you're watching tough circumstances force your relationship and your life to change, and you're trying to find a healthy and a good way through it. Or like Matt talked about last week, maybe you're experiencing a death of some kind right now. A real physical death of a loved one, or maybe even an intangible death of a hope or a dream that you've held. A death that is forcing you to transition into a new way of life. Whatever it may be, what words would you use to characterize your discernment process right now? Are you excited and eager, hopeful, 
Are you anxious, confused, afraid of going the wrong way or ruining your life altogether? Radical thought here. I believe most of us actually want to do what's best. We want to make the right decisions for us, for our families, for our communities, for our careers, for our beliefs. I believe most of us want to include and honor God in that decision-making process. We want God to lead us into new things so that we feel like we're tracking with the Lord on everything, from buying a car to changing relationships to finding our balance again in the midst of hard circumstances. But I also think that our desire to make a good decision, or even our desire to make the perfect decision, can quickly become engulfed by the fear of making the wrong decision, a fear that can cripple us. Before long, we're afraid to make any decision at all. There's a philosopher that I came across at Princeton University that has coined this feeling decidophobia, right? the fear of making the wrong decision the fear of going the wrong way. And according to this philosopher's research, this fear leads to a blurred thinking, a lack of clarity, a, a loss of self as we try to increasingly depend on others to just choose for us. It all leads to this really dangerous mixture of, of this loss of, of direction and control that impacts the way that we see ourselves and others and our circumstances and even our God. We're afraid of blowing it. We're afraid of ruining our lives. We're afraid of letting go of a good thing. We're afraid of letting others down, letting ourselves down. We're afraid of letting God down. We, we act as if, as if God's waiting on the sidelines, right? waiting with scrutiny, ready to be happy with us if we make the right decision, ready to be disappointed with us if we make the wrong decision. And we get so turned in circles, and our thinking becomes so blurred that we have no idea what right decision even means anymore. And all along, right, that decision is not going anywhere. Eventually, that decision must be made. And it's going to be made whether we run full sprint into them with confidence or tiptoe into them with fear. Fortunately, this is not a unique experience for us. This is a human experience. And in our passage, I want us to hear what Jesus has to say. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John that we're calling Signs and Wonders. And each week, we're looking at a story or a sign that John chooses to highlight so that he can show others a picture of Jesus. And by the time that John's writing his gospel, John's come a long way. Right? He's gone through a lot of transitions of his own. He and his brother came from a small fishing village in the Sea of Galilee. Think of a place like Rockport or Gloucester. And eventually, they get connected with this guy named Jesus. And they went all around the region as part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus upheaved their lives. Jumping forward after Jesus' death and resurrection, by the time the early church movement was starting, John finds himself in Ephesus. And Ephesus as a city was gigantic. Think of a place like Chicago or, or Washington, D.C. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It's a long way from that small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. And as John's role grew in the early church, he aimed, like so many other writers of the time, to communicate Jesus' message to this Roman audience, the very audience that he did relationship with in Ephesus. And as meaningful and wonderful as John's signs and wonders are for us to read, we have to remember that, that they were first written to John's context. They were written for the people with whom John interacted on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Every day, John gets up in Ephesus, and he lives life in a very Greco-Roman context. There's an emphasis on learning and intellectualism. There's an emphasis on the arts, right? literature, architecture, rhetoric, sculpture. There was a celebration of, of Greco-Roman political philosophy, overt efforts to bring that philosophy to the rest of the world by force if needed. A philosophy ironically called the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. But above all, the fuel that turned the gears of the Roman Empire was a religious fuel. Every day, especially in Ephesus, John would have walked by a Roman pantheon of gods. Gods who are claiming to provide daily provision, guidance, direction, truth to Roman citizens who worship them. Whatever you were into, whatever you needed, beauty, power, love, travel, entertainment, war, partying, there is a God for you. If you need groceries, you go pray to the God of Demeter, the God of the harvest. If you were about to create something, you would pray to Vulcan, the God of craftsmanship. If you were about to push for justice and attempt to make things right, you would pray to Minerva, the God of the courts. I was fortunate enough uh, to myself to spend time in Ephesus a few years ago, and I cannot overstate my hair was a lot longer then, as you can see. I cannot overstate how much the Roman religion saturated everything. Like, before I went, I knew that the Roman gods were a big deal. Before I went, I read about them and studied them. But then I went, and they are an even bigger deal than I'd imagined. Everywhere I turned, I felt like I was bumping into another statue of a god, another inscription referring to a god. The emperor himself was seen as a god. They were everywhere. And remember, I was exploring ruins. Think about how much I did not see. In the Greco-Roman mind, there is a God for every situation, every circumstance, every decision to be made. And so when we read the Gospel of John, the Gospel written in Ephesus, we see John comment and confront this religious world around him. Right? John, John points to Jesus' words all throughout his Gospel. You, you think you're praying to Demeter, the God of the harvest, but no, Jesus says that he is the bread of life. You think you're praying to Vulcan, the god of craftsmanship, but no, John is sure to say that in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and God created everything through Jesus. Nothing was created except through Jesus. And as we'll see, John is doing something similar in our passage this morning. He's confronting a mindset that so many around him are carrying, and I think it's a mindset that so many of us carry too. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John 10. It's a passage that, passage that Una just read for us this morning. While you take some time to get there, I'd like to introduce you to the Roman god Janus. Janus is the Roman god of gates and doorways. Right, so this can be quite literal, like maybe the process of coming through a door into a house. But more commonly for Romans, it was applied to transitioning in this abstract sense. Right, transitions from one condition to another, or from one state of being to another. Janus was the god of, of new beginnings, transitions, decisions. Janus is often depicted as having two faces, one face looking one way, another face looking another way. Right, the idea is that one face looks forward into the future, and one face is looking backward into the past. Romans prayed to Janus at, at marriages, 
at deaths, at other beginnings in their life that they considered significant. Janus represented the middle ground between barbarism and civilization, rural and urban, youth and adulthood. Janus was the god who laid in the doorway, the threshold in the middle of one thing and another thing. I love the way that uh, Wikipedia put it, the fine scholarship that they do over in Wikipedia world. Wikipedia says that Janus was the god who had jurisdictions over beginnings and ends. So if a good religious Roman had a big decision coming up, a change in job, a marriage, maybe moving cities, they would go pray to Janus to secure a stable and solid future for themselves. And typically the way this looked is a worshiper would sacrifice an animal to Janus, and then a religious leader would interpret that sacrifice and then tell this person what Janus says about them and how things were going to go in their lives. This is John's world. This is the context to which John writes his gospel. John and John's neighbors would have been familiar with this process. And so with that in mind, I want us to read chapter 10, verse 1. John is quoting Jesus here. I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold, sheepfold is just another word for sheep pen here, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd. The sheep recognize the shepherd's voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from the stranger because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, which I want to pause here. I love that John just adds that in. Like, how many of us are confused when you, when you hear Jesus teach something? And then John is adding, hey, we were all really confused by this. That, that's just strangely encouraging to me. Um, let's go on. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come through me will be saved. They will come and go freely, and they will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Continuing with verse 11 here, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf, wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. In Jesus' day, sheep pens, or sheep folds, were these enclosed, protected areas, and each one would have one gate, one doorway. Usually it wasn't like a big doorway, think like the size of the door to a room in our, or the door to our homes. And each night, shepherds, when watching over a flock, would lay themselves in the doorway to go to sleep. So picture a shepherd falling asleep 
lying down or maybe sitting up against the wall. They did this, of course, so that no sheep would get out, because the sheep wouldn't step over the shepherd to get out of the pen, and also so that no predators would get in. Predators wouldn't want to cross over the shepherd. As Jesus himself says, only thieves and robbers would be the ones that sneak over the wall. And so in this teaching, Jesus is painting a picture of a bunch of sheep all crammed into this pen. And then Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the door. I am the one that stays and protects and preserves. And not only am I the door, but I am the shepherd. I am the one that goes out first. I lead. I guide. I don't abandon. When the sheep are sleeping, I am lying in the door, keeping the sheep in and keeping others out. When it's time to move, I get up and I call sheep out by name. Now, John is living and writing in a world that says that Janus is the god of gates. Janus is the god of transitions. Janus leads people from one place to another. But John writes that he knew Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I'm the gate. I am the one that lies between the pen and the pasture. I am here with you, and I am here for you. And when it's time for you to move, I'm going to be your shepherd. I protect you. I see you through. I see you in and out. I am the one that wakes up first, and I beckon you forward from one place to another. Not Janus. For John's Roman neighbors in Ephesus, this would have been such a contrast to hear about a god. Picture yourself as, as, as a good Roman citizen coming up on a big life change, ready to go sacrifice to the temple of Janus. How would you feel as you carry this heavy decision and life worry and questions as you walked up these giant steps to a temple? A temple that's built to display strength and invite your worship just through intimidation. Hear what a Roman, a Roman philosopher wrote about what it was like to sacrifice to Janus. He said, omens are in the beginnings. You turn your fearful ears to the first sounds, and the priest decides on the grounds of the first sacrifice he has seen. The doors of the temples are open, as well as the ears of the gods, and your words have weight. Does this feel inviting, hospitable, pleasant, fun? Approaching Janus was terrifying for people, right? You, you'd come filled with all this fear and anxiety because you need your future to go well. You need this transition to, to be successful. And in order for that to happen, Janus needs to be on your side. And that's not a guarantee. You need your future to be successful for you and your family, and you don't know what that priest is going to say to you. Contrast this to Jesus. Jesus, a God who says that you're known by name, a God who says that he watches over you and protects you and preserves you because he is the gate. You are God's. A God who says that when it's time to move, God's going to get up and go out first, calling you out, ensuring that things are safe. God is the good shepherd. As we come to transitions and thresholds and, and the bigger decisions of our lives, all of us just want to know, are we going to be okay? On the other side of this transition, am I going to be safe? And this is not a unique question to Roman citizens. I see this fear everywhere today. 
we want to know if we're going to be okay. We want to know so badly that sometimes that we look to gods that don't exist. Gods that don't care about us. It doesn't look, it doesn't look like Janus and religious sacrifices in temples anymore, but we have our gods. Money, time, productivity hacks, strength, celebrities that tell us things are going to be okay, material wealth that promises it's going to keep us secure in the future. And so what about you? How are you feeling as you approach your transition? Are you stuck in this decision paralysis? Are you afraid to make any movement at all? Are you desperate for it to be over? Ready to just close your eyes and, and push through in this hope it randomly all worked out? Are you tiptoeing? Are you afraid of thinking or saying or wondering or dreaming about the wrong thing? How are you engaging Jesus in your transition? Are you engaging Jesus in your transition? And if you are, are you engaging Jesus as protector, as gate, as shepherd, as, as the one who protects, as the one who leads? Or are you making Jesus genus, this wizard in the sky who may or may not wave the wand and make things work for you, depending on how he's feeling that day? You know, so often, especially as we come to big changes in our lives, we engage God as if God is just in the background, leaving us alone, hoping that we just figure it out without him. As if God's on the sidelines watching us, arms crossed, waiting to see if we're going to make the right decision. And if we make the right decision, God's going to be happy with us. But only if we make the right decision. If we make the wrong decision, God's going to be angry with us. You better... If you're a good Christian, pick, pick the right job and right street and right church and right school and, and, and right boyfriend. I know this is tough, but you better readjust well because you're a good Christian. Because if you don't, God's going to be upset. And trust me, if you're a good Christian, you'll know what to do. Of course, like we can all verbally hear this, and we can all agree that, yeah, this isn't who God is. Yet as I meet with people and I talk with people, it's this view of God that I hear baked into words and in people's psyches. It's a view that sees God not as a shepherd who lies in the transition, in the gate to protect us, but sees God as this angry parent, ready to shame, ready to withhold love if and when we screw things up. It's rarely overt. It's subtle. It's subconscious. It's sneaky. We make Jesus genus. I once heard a pastor uh, connect John chapter 10 to another passage, Micah chapter 2, and I found the connection brilliant. I've never been able to shake it or forget it every time I read John 10. In Micah 2, God speaks as a shepherd, and God's people are, are compared to sheep in the pen. Starting with Micah 2, verse 12, this is God speaking. Someday, O Israel, I will gather you, I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Filled with noisy crowds. Imagine, imagine a bunch of sheep standing inside of a pen, bustling, ready to go out into the pasture to transition into a new environment. Verse 13, your leader will break out now, the Hebrew word for breakout is the Hebrew word prats, 
right? It means, it means to outpour, to, to burst, to accelerate out. Micah says that God, as our shepherd, will break out, will prats into the new world, and then turn around and beckon the sheep to come into a new pasture, a land of health and noise and abundance and healing. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land. And Micah ends the chapter with this beautiful statement of security. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. This image of God is not one that leads through intimidation or oppression. While the sheep just, just close their eyes and hope things work out. It's not one that waits behind and abandons the sheep to go figure it out on their own. God himself is the king who protects, who leads, who guides, who engages. A shepherd who walks to the new place first, securing a place of safety before finally turning around and inviting the sheep to follow. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. I am the gate. Those who transition through me will be protected and saved. They will come in and go out, and they will find new pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. The good shepherd calls the sheep by name and leads them out. The good shepherd walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. This is our God. This is who we worship. This is who protects us. This is who we follow. And of course, life with Jesus doesn't mean that we stop engaging big decisions with, with wisdom and humility, right? Some decisions are better for you. Some decisions aren't very good for you. No doubt. Right? Do your research. Pray without ceasing. Put it before your community. Put it before your small group. People who are wiser, ask them what they think. Don't do things alone. Life with Jesus also doesn't mean that all decisions are just going to magically work out for you. Maybe you are a sheep that's been in your sheep pen for a long time. And despite being used to what you know, it's time to move to a new pen, a new pasture. Sometimes that is a tough adjustment, and there's no way around it. It's painful. Pastor Matt said to me this past week, as we discussed this passage, he likened it that something, adjusting to something new can be like standing in darkness when all of a sudden bright lights come on. Right? It's going to take a few moments for us to adjust. It's also worth mentioning that sometimes choices themselves are out of our control. Right? Sometimes choices are made for us, and we have no say over them. But we're still the ones negatively impacted in the end. In many ways, choices themselves are marks of privilege. Right? Many people don't even get choices. But even when we are thrust into a new world, a new pasture that's hard and overwhelming and strange, we still know our shepherd. And the shepherd knows us. We know who sits in the gate. It's Jesus. Jesus isn't in the back ordering us around, telling us where to go. He's not in some big temple in the shadows talking to us through a priest, asking us to sacrifice. Jesus doesn't say, go there, hope it works out for you. Jesus says, hey, I've checked it out. Follow me. I've secured a place for you. Our Jesus is unequivocally in our corner. Without question, our Jesus has our back. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Even when we're down and out, 
even when we're pinched and pushed and squeezed by somebody else's choices, we still know the shepherd, and the shepherd knows us. We know who lies in the gate while we sheep, while we sleep. Right? Paul says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today nor worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our security doesn't come from the fate of the gods. Our security comes from Jesus, the one who lies in the gate, the one who goes before. Who are you looking to right now? As you hold that big decision and big question in front of you, who are you worshiping? Are you looking to Janus, tiptoeing through the circumstances with, with fear and anxiety and worry, ready for things to go wrong, ready for judgment on your life, just randomly hoping that the gods like you enough to make your life work out? Or are you looking to shepherd Jesus, the one who has gone and secured a place for you, the one who invites us to follow in confidence, a confidence that is rooted in who God is and the story that God is telling in the world? A confidence that, that knows Jesus loves us and desires good things for us. A confidence that knows that, that because we are the Lord's, we can trust the story and our part in the story that God is writing for the world. A confidence that knows Jesus loves us and will see us through, unconditionally, without fail, without flippancy, without chance. Full stop. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we hold before you now that big question, that future transition, God. We, we hold before you now that threshold that we're staring at. Lord, we stand before that door. We want to see you there. Jesus, we, we repent for the ways that we're not looking for you. We repent for the ways that we don't believe your voice, that we don't trust you on the other side. Forgive us for the ways that we miss you or forget who's lying in the gate at night when we sleep. Forgive us for the other gods that we look to. God, so much of our, our, our world and our culture just feasts upon our fears of the future. And you've already spoken for our future. You've already secured our future for us. God, I pray for clarity in this room, that people see you, people see your face, that hear your voice on the other side. God, you are mighty, you are, are loving, you know us by name, you protect us and love us and lead us into an abundant life, a rich life, a satisfying life. Thank you, Gate. Thank you, Shepherd. Thank you, good Lord. Amen.